This episode of 11 Point Collar is brought to you by the power of voodoo and weirdos like you. You're listening to 11 Point Collar, hosted by J.D. Hansel of MuppetHub.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. J.D. Hansel here from MuppetHub.com to take you on a trip through Jim Henson's Labyrinth this week on 11 Point Collar. This is episode number 82 of 11PC, and please be sure you're subscribed to the show by visiting MuppetHub.com iTunes to catch all of our future episodes. If you find the goodness in your heart to give us a rating or review in iTunes, whether positive or negative, I really appreciate that. You can get in touch with me, ask me questions, or send feedback, or whatever you like, by sending an email to me, that's me at MuppetHub.com. And please do so. I love hearing from you guys. Follow us on Facebook at MuppetHub.com slash Facebook, and on Twitter at MuppetHub.com slash Twitter, or at JD11PC to keep up with all the goings-on at MuppetHub. You may have noticed that we really don't have much in the way of goings-on at Muppet Hub right now because I am currently in the busiest semester of my life in college, so I really appreciate your understanding about that. Still, I recently posted a video of my unboxing of the new Labyrinth Blu-ray gift set, and you can see that now at youtube.com slash MuppetHub, where I also posted a little musical tribute to FrogFan76. That's not really relevant to the topic of Labyrinth, I just felt like throwing that in. Anyway, with all the Labyrinth celebration that's been happening online and in Atlanta recently, I wanted to follow up my unboxing video with a podcast that looked a little more at what's on the new Labyrinth Blu-ray disc itself and throw in some fun Labyrinth trivia along the way. I also plan on taking a look at some of the writings about this film that you'll find in the book Jim Henson and Philosophy by Timothy M. Dale and Joseph J. Foy, so stay tuned for that. If I don't make it happen in this episode, I will make it happen in the next episode of the show. But I think it's going to be this one. Only time will tell. Because of all this, as I think you can tell, this is going to be a very talky show with lots of my professorial lecturing. So brace yourself for that. But I am going to add some music throughout, and some other fun. I've already started playing music that you probably haven't heard before, as some of you may have noticed because I recently found the instrumental version of Underground that was released as part of the Underground EP from 1986. This EP includes some dance mixes as well, and was followed by the release of a Magic Dance EP that consisted of some rather strange and interesting remixes of Magic Dance, uh, and originally included Within You as well. The online version doesn't include that track. I believe As the World Falls Down was set to be released as either a single or EP at some point, but that release was cancelled. So here's a bit of what's been called the dub mix of Magic Dance.
And now it's time for Trivia Time. You may recall the running gag in the film about Jareth and Sarah getting Hoggle's name wrong, but just how well do you know the details of this running gag? Which of the following names was Hoggle not called at any time during Labyrinth? A. Hoghead B. Hardhead C. Headwart or D. Hogwart If you guessed B, you're correct. He was never called Hardhead, but after the first half of the film, everyone must have figured out his name for good because the running gag is dropped somewhere around the halfway mark. If you got this trivia question wrong, don't feel bad. Roger Ebert somehow left the screening thinking Hoggle's name was Toby. I kid you not. Jim Henson, creator of The Muppets. George Lucas, creator of Star Wars, take you on a dazzling adventure. <laughs> There's nothing to be afraid of. Turn back, Sarah, before it's too late. She must be stopped. Labyrinth, rated PG, starts Friday at a specially selected theater near you. And now I'd like to take a look at some of the features of the new 30th anniversary Blu-ray, starting with the look of the film itself. When I first started watching it, I was a little bothered by just how much fuzz, sparkle, and static there was in the image. And unfortunately, fuzz, sparkle, and static are not the names of puppet characters in the film. They're what I'm calling the excessively detailed grain that appears in some Blu-ray's HD remasters of older films. This fuzziness is a little charming at first, and it's not very problematic in DVD releases of older films that sort of blur it or pixelate it a little bit because DVDs stink, but eventually this fuzziness and popping gets really tiring on the eyes when it's enhanced by the high picture quality. Fortunately, this effect mostly dies down a few minutes into the film, uh, and it looks excellent from then on. The labyrinth itself just looks gorgeous, particularly with the beautiful matte paintings that are used throughout to glorious effect. And this is so, so much nicer than all of the ways I had previously seen the film, whether online or on DVD. Little details become much more noticeable, including the ones we probably were not supposed to notice. Little things like the string moving a spider in the Goblin City, it has some amount of charm to it, and the spider string was honestly kind of noticeable on the DVD too, so I give that a pass. The eyes, however, get no such pass from me. It's obvious on the Blu-ray that some of the mossy eyes, you remember the animatronic eyes watching Sarah, some of them are not animatronic. Some are just craft store googly eyes glued onto their fake moss. It looks really silly, but fortunately the camera doesn't stick with those too long and tries to move along quickly to the really cool ones. Now, as far as the bonus features go, I had seen a number of them before, but I still didn't get through all of the features on the disc. This is mostly because I really like to save some features for later so I can keep getting my money's worth out of the set for years to come. So while I can't talk about the Q&A or Brian Froud's audio commentary, I'll mention some other things. On the whole, 
there really aren't all that many bonus features on here that hadn't been previously released, which is a bummer, seeing as how they made such a big deal about this set. Still, I hadn't seen any of the features that were included with the previous Blu-ray releases, which I think includes Brian Froud's commentary, uh, so this is a lot of new stuff for me, personally. The Henson Legacy featurette is certainly new to this disc, and I like that it offered a bit of a look into what goes on behind the scenes of the Center for Puppetry Arts. That being said, I've seen footage from the Restoration Room before, and I don't think I learned much from this particular footage. Uh, I really didn't learn a lot that I hadn't learned before in any part of the featurette, now that I think about it. But I suppose the one exception was the origin of Didymus. I had no idea that the character was based in part on Henson's own family pet, and I think that's the kind of stories the featurette could have elaborated on a bit more. I guess I was hoping for more of a focus on what's happened at the Center for Puppetry Arts since I was there last, uh, helping me catch up on what I hadn't seen, and it would be great if they'd included some pictures from uh, the ball on September 1st, even if that meant delaying the Blu-ray release by a few weeks. In the end, though, this feature serves as a good commercial of sorts to get people going out to the CPA, so I guess that is a good thing. The David Bowie tribute is about what I expected, although it is a little short, but it is nice seeing the archival footage. Both this feature and the Henson Legacy one focus on a lot of older footage we've seen in labyrinth documentaries and stock photos we've seen around the web, but they do also include a fair amount of material that didn't look at all familiar to me, which is really good. It's also cool that they were able to interview Jennifer Connolly for this Blu-ray, because her contributions clearly make it more special. I do think that the Blu-ray as a whole serves as a pretty nice tribute to Bowie, though, and I'm very pleased about that. When I watched the film this time around, I finally watched it with the picture-in-picture -picture track, which was a really nice feature, and I wish more home video releases would include things like it. The interviews they got were pretty cool, although they unfortunately did not have the names of the speakers visible. I didn't catch a name once, <laughs> so, so some of them I recognized right away, Cheryl Henson, Raleigh Crewson, and of course Warwick Davis. And uh, Warwick is someone I did not expect to see on this track. I greatly enjoyed seeing Kevin Clash on the commentary track, because I noticed just how much I miss listening to him tell stories from his days working with Jim. It was a very nice group of people who had some neat things to say, and I think I learned a little bit uh, more than I knew before. Maybe a great deal than I knew before from this particular feature. What really stuck out to me is actually one of the first things I heard on the picture-in-picture -picture track, which is Cheryl's note about Jim Henson's encouragement to think with the heart rather than the head. She says he made lots of choices in his life that didn't follow traditional logic, and he encouraged his children to forego logical thinking as well. Please stand by and take the time to write your own joke. Anyway, I think her argument that this theme appears in the film could really be refuted rather simply by listening to Sarah's discussion with Didymus at the bridge. I mean, she actually says, let's think about this logically, and then instantly <laughs> gets free passage across the bridge from Didymus. So I think I'll touch on Cheryl's analysis of the film a little more when I give you a taste of my own reading of the film shortly. But before I do, here's another treat for you. I was a little disappointed by the fact that certain bonus features on the disc keep mentioning all these complete demos that David Bowie recorded for the film, but these demos aren't included on the Blu-ray. I don't understand that. So while you've probably heard it before, here's what David Bowie's demo for Chili Down sounded like. 
step to toe And your chin is dragging on the ground So I've had a copy of the book Jim Henson and Philosophy for a long time now, but I've never really had time to read it. I'm a very slow reader, so I just haven't been able to make the time. Today, however, I stuck myself in a small study room and did nothing but read the four essays I found in the table of contents that make Labyrinth a main focus. It took me about two hours, which is not ideal for an attempt to get through about 35 pages as quickly as possible, but for me, I'll take it gladly. Anyway, these essays are quite fascinating, and they kind of make me wish I'd published my own essay on Labyrinth at some point. I think it was a little over a year ago or so that I started writing an essay on Labyrinth that related to my theory of functional illusions, and while I had intended to publish it on the website of a friend of mine who seemed to have high hopes for it, I never came close to finishing it. I think I'll probably finish it soon and either release it on Muppet Hub or on another Muppet fan site soon, but for now you'll have to settle for some of the notes I took during my most recent re-watching of the film. And believe me, I took a lot of notes because I always notice different things when I watch this particular film, which is why I love it so much. Here are a few of the key takeaways from my notes mixed in with my theories about and readings of the film I've been developing for the past few years now. Sarah feels very much out of place in her real life, and her mother is either dead or more likely in another part of the world, leaving her with no friends and nobody to whom she really relates or bonds. She doesn't fit into reality, and is much more comfortable in her own fantasies, in the world in her head. That's my explanation for why her acting seems so strange and just plain bad in the first part of the film, uh, between her run home in the rain and when she's telling the story to baby Toby. See, she doesn't feel like herself when she's dealing with real-life problems. But as soon as she's taken by Jareth, she says, come on feet, and moves along as though everything is suddenly normal for her. What really struck me this viewing is that the Dutch angles, that's the professional term for the shots that turn the camera slightly sideways a little to make everything more eerie, they don't start when the goblins arrive, as one would expect if the goblins are the horrific part of the scene, but they start when she first enters Toby's room. This would suggest that the real horror in Sarah's world is not so much the creepy fantasy creatures as it is the real-life responsibilities. Now, a few miscellaneous minor notes. I very much get the sense from all the Broadway posters in Sarah's room that her mother is a stage performer. The total difference between Didymus and Ambrosius is visually mimicked when they look back and forth contemporaneously but in opposite directions at the start of the goblin battle. In the ballroom scene, the humans wearing goblin masks are the only characters in the film who laugh at Sarah regularly other than the goblins. Maybe part of Jareth's illusion is that the humans disguised as goblins are actually his goblins who he's magically disguised as humans. Sarah's journey through the labyrinth is bookended with Hoggle's pee-pee. 
No, really. When she first arrives at the labyrinth, she encounters Hoggle taking a whiz in the water. And when she's finally reached the Goblin City, we see a fountain depicting Hoggle peeing in the water. This is what we film buffs would call mirroring. The goblins that Hoggle calls the cleaners drive this giant mechanical machine that's designed to clean out the underground tunnels in the labyrinth. And its mechanical nature, and of course it's circular, nature, makes it look sort of like a clock. Because the film has just shown a moment earlier, Jareth changing the time so that Sarah would have fewer hours to get through the labyrinth, this giant clock-like figure seems to mirror Sarah's situation of racing with the clock. Will you listen to this crap? Mm. Oh, oh, okay, fine. I'll quit the symbolic analysis, okay? Okay! Alright? Alright! Good. It's tempting to compare Sarah's three male companions to the three male companions in The Wizard of Oz, but really all three are explorations of cowardice. Ludo is the one who clearly physically resembles the Cowardly Lion the most, and he too is very meek considering his giant scary appearance. But while he does mention getting scared, it's more childlike or dog-like coming from him. Hoggle is the one who is criticized throughout the story for his cowardice, and he eventually redeems himself. Didymus, however, is the character who doesn't have enough cowardice, and consequently he's rather stupid and naive, but his dog has cowardice that holds him back. Moving on now to a more broad film analysis that relates to the essays in the book, this story is clearly about growing up, particularly when you have to shift from a child to a responsible adult during your teenage years. This is given away very early on by the fact that when Hoggle is first found, he's in the middle of killing fairies, which is perhaps one of the most perfect and simple metaphors for ending one's childhood in the history of film. Most of the essays on Labyrinth in Jim Henson and Philosophy understand that, but the first one unfortunately doesn't. I actually really liked all of the essays I read in this book, with the exception of that first one, which I am here to tell you is full of crap. It's called Overconsumption and Environmentalism in Labyrinth, and it's written by David and Deborah Burns, two instructors at the Southern Illinois University, who are convinced that the movie is about our excessive waste harming the environment and, I quote, resistance against the dominant media's messages of overconsumption, and challenges viewers to defy mass media and contemporary culture's pervasive messages of hyperconsumerism and conspicuous consumption. They try to convince readers that Sarah's problem is that she values consumer items too much, which they think is why her family situation is bad. It's been eroded by consumerism, they say. Now, obviously, the junk lady scene is designed to focus on the negative effects, certainly the negative environmental effects, of the overconsumption in our culture. But that's not what the whole movie's about. Jim Henson really cared about the environment, as do I, but... This made him totally willing to throw a scene in the film on the environment, not because it's the message of the film, but because Jim just felt he ought to mention the subject at some point. That's exactly the kind of filmmaking we Muppet fans would expect from Jim. Their view just isn't very well backed up by the film, and they're contorting things to fit their strange reading that just don't fit it. Heck, they assume that It's Not Easy Being Green was originally written to be about the environment, even though Kermit has gone on record saying that that was a later interpretation of the lyrics. In Labyrinth, if what would make Sarah's life better is putting away her consumer goods and connecting with her family, as these two hipsters claim, uh, we'd have a scene with her running to see her father at the end. But he's never seen at the end of the movie. I mean, we hear him from behind the closed door, but, you know, we just focus on her and her toys and her fantasy friends. We even see characters in a room partying with her who had been antagonists. 
and they're partying with her not because she's no longer interested in her toys, but because those characters were her toys at the beginning of the film. Her little fantasy life in her bedroom already includes a fiery and some goblins if you look closely. Because those were the toys she had. It's, it's not much of a condemnation of her focus on her stuff if her stuff is who she's partying with at the end. I don't think that works at all. Furthermore, the junk lady scene isn't even necessarily about what they say it's about. The junk lady scene. That seems like the most obvious support for their case, but I think it actually fits better into my reading of the film, focused on Sarah's management of her childhood fantasies. Think about it. When we see the walls of her illusory bedroom fall apart and her mirror break, this scene directly follows a scene in which her illusory ballroom falls apart and its mirror breaks. Now, if she's supposed to give up on consumerism and instead focus on social experiences in order to find her happiness, why does she destroy the social experience she's been offered? I say it's because the junk lady scene represents being stuck in the world of her childhood, and the ballroom scene represents being stuck in a world of adulthood. But she can't just have one or the other. Each is empty junk at this point in her life without the other. Burns and Burns just see the junk lady as being a part of the film's series of distractions and temptations representing consumerism that will keep her away from the meaningful life of connecting with other people. But these scenes are matched with scenes of social situations that tempt and distract her as well, whether it's the ballroom scene, or the fireys that exemplify teenage peer pressure, or simply the worm trying to get her to come inside and meet the missus. Interestingly, this essay doesn't even take advantage of all of the elements of the film or moments in the film that could bolster its claim. When she uses her lipstick, one of the few elements from home she carries with her into the labyrinth, one of the few normal products that we see. She uses it in order to mark where she's gone before, and it totally fails on her. The wise old man is selling his supposed wisdom and knowledge as a commodity, and it's junk too. Honestly, one could even argue that the world of the ballroom that Jareth presents comes from her childlike idea of what adulthood should be based on her music box, which they could have argued is the real reason why she has to reject this ballroom world. As much as I'm trying to steel man their argument, and I really am, I still don't like it. I just wish the writers had thought this through a bit more and really analyzed all of the possible arguments to be made both for and against their claim before they wrote it. As for the other essays I read in the book, they're good. Brooke Covington did a really fascinating piece on how a lot of Jim Henson's work relates to epic curarianism, something like that. Anyway, I think that was a very clever and astute observation that is expressed very well. Natalie M. Fletcher looks at the limits on Sarah's perspectives and moral reasoning, making for another very good chapter, and I hope someone will expand on the idea she briefly touches on of relativism in Henson's works. Jennifer Mar Mara, I think it's th that's how it's pronounced, Mara, offers a look at the villains of both Labyrinth and Mirror Mask that highlights the similarities and differences between the characters, and also does an exceptionally good job at exploring Sarah's desire for freedom from her real-life responsibilities. Ultimately, I think all of these are good pieces because they look at the film with an understanding that it's a fantasy story about fantasy stories, and that means they're off to a good start to begin with. Now, because of what Cheryl Henson said about how the film deals with making choices with the heart rather than the head, I think that it would be great if someone wrote an essay on how freedom of choice and fatalism are explored in Labyrinth. 
I don't feel like doing that myself anytime soon because I'm writing enough about fatalism for my film noir class, honestly, but I think there's a lot in the film that would make this an interesting paper. I mean, the movie starts with Sarah reading the script for this story. The story is determined from the beginning, and the characters seem to know it. The moment Hoggle sees Sarah, he says, Oh, it's you. It's as though there's a sense that this story has played out this way many times before, and it will have to play out this same way over and over again until the end of time. It's really intellectually stimulating for a snobby academic type like me. But anyway, while you're waiting for someone to write this essay, I suggest picking up a copy of Jim Henson and Philosophy at your local bookstore or online, and let me know what you think of it. I know it can be really silly reading this much into a story that probably wasn't designed to have all this meaning in the first place. I mean, the script is a crazy mutant hybrid of the writings of Jim Henson, Terry Jones, Brian Froud, George Lucas, Laura Phillips, Dennis Lee, Elaine May, and who knows who else. So the idea that all of this deep meaning was carefully, deliberately authored into the film from the start would just be absolutely absurd. However, I firmly believe that this is one of the most intellectually engaging films ever made, and the critics who dismissed it as meaningless fantasies and clumsy nonsense are really missing a lot. After all, things are not always what they seem in this place, so you can't take anything for granted. There's such a sign of love Deep in your eyes, a kind of pale doom Open and closed within your eyes I'll place the sky within your eyes There's such a fool so fast in such a new dreams A love that will last within your heart I'll place the moon within your heart As the pain sweeps through Makes no sense for you Every thrill is gone Wasn't too much fun at all But I'll be there for you
And with that, we've finally come to the end of another show, and it's been exhausting. It's taken me a while. I'm sorry that I haven't been producing more shows lately, but this has been a lot of work for me to produce this one, but I really hope you guys liked it. Anyway, have fun celebrating Labyrinth. I hope you pick up some version of the movie that has some of these cool bonus features I talked about. And again, please let me know what you think. I'd love to hear your feedback at me, M-E, at MuppetHub.com. That's about all I have for this time, and instead of doing my usual weekly random closing song of the week thing, this time I'm just going to keep playing Magic Dance because I'm really just in a Magic Dance mood. I mean, come on, it's Labyrinth!